Welcome to Pitch Deck Series 5, where we'll be having bite-sized conversations with established investors in early-stage startups. Looking to provide you with great nuggets of information when raising or considering raising seed capital. Pitch Deck is supported by Trumpet. If you work in sales or marketing and are tired of spending hours a week creating sales decks, then Trumpet is for you. Design personalized, interactive and trackable mini sites in a few clicks. Stand out from the crowd whilst also giving your customers a seamless experience from pitch to onboarding. To find out more, visit www.sendtrumpet.com. That's sendtrumpet.com and join the best in brass. I'm absolutely thrilled to welcome Eamon Carey into the pitch studio today. Eamon is a partner at Terra Ventures, where he focuses on pre-seed and seed stage investments across multiple sectors. He's previously been a founder, an MD at Techstars in London and New York, and a partner at The Fund. He's invested in almost 100 companies across Europe, the US, Africa, and Asia, and I will definitely call him one of those super angels. So Eamon, delighted to have you here today. Oh, thanks very much for having me. I'm uh, excited to be here. So let's dive straight in. So I'm interested to learn what verticals are really getting you going at the moment. And just out of interest, how often does your thesis change? I think the, the thesis question, I suppose, changes in some respects almost day by day or, or maybe more week by week. You know, I've, I've been doing a couple of deals recently where they're kind of more future of retail focused, which was was never something I explicitly set out to do. But as I started kind of talking to a couple of companies and hearing kind of what they were working on, I started kind of thinking a little bit more laterally about retail and e-commerce and, and the challenges that direct-to-consumer companies have, the challenges that bigger brands have, and the the experience that, that, that we as consumers have when we're, when we're shopping online. So I think occasionally you can kind of develop a, an, an almost accidental thesis and I think a lot of that is a function of, you know, one of the great pleasures of this role or of this this kind of job in inverted commas that I have is you're constantly meeting smart people and, and constantly you should be pushing yourself to learn new things and have conversations about sectors or products that, that, that you don't really know an awful lot about so that it, it forces you to go and read a book or listen to a bunch of podcasts and, and educate yourself. So Future of Retail was, as I say, a, a slightly accidental one, that, a rabbit hole that I've now well and truly fallen down. But other ones, I, I'm really excited about what's happening in, in food tech, both you know what we eat in terms of, of lab-grown meats and companies like Kenko, who I've invested in, where they're doing kind of amazing stuff, helping people get to their five-a-day of, of fruits and vegetables, right the way through to where we eat it, how we eat it. You know, all of eating is something that we obviously have to do on a fairly regular basis. And so you know, as markets go, I think it's an interesting one. I've invested in a lot of machine learning and computer vision companies, again, Doing the first couple of deals in that sector sent me down myriad rabbit holes and, you know, led me to a lot of interesting conversations. And, you know, the more that you dig in, the more you uncover, you know, potential opportunities. I, I previously ran a Facebook games company, so I've, I've always been interested in what's happening in the kind of entertainment and, and gaming space. So also recently invested in, in a couple of companies in that sector, both game development studios, but also people who are kind of building the, the picks and shovels for, for folks who are developing games. I'm looking a lot at technology for aging populations. Uh, I think the the kind of 60 plus, maybe 60 to, to 75 year old demographic 
you know, a lot of them have been using tablets and smartphones and computers in their working and personal lives and are largely neglected by, you know, an entrepreneurial cohort that's building tools for for 16-year-olds. And uh, I think there's, again, a lot of kind of white space and opportunity there. But, you know, I, I try to be kind of polyamorous, I guess, when it, when it comes to um, to sectors. I, I find it's best to keep an open mind. And, and as an investor, one of the fortunate situations that you find yourself in is if founders trust you and if they feel like they're you're doing a good job as an investor and as a supporter and as a mentor or advisor you know they will refer other deals to you in fact i'd say a, a fairly substantial chunk of the investments that i've made have been referrals from other founders that i've that i've backed to said hey because you're doing x in food you should go talk to Eamon. and and that's been that's been really incredible to see and this might be a bit of a broad question, but I'm just interested to know if, if there is an answer to this. When you're getting pitched, let, let's say the pitch deck to start with, across all these different sectors that are very different, so, you know, the world I know is SaaS and Marketplace, for example. But when you've got, say, you know, lab-grown food versus gaming versus yeah, you know, the silver economy, do you expect to see a similar pitch that follows a similar vein or do different sectors benefit from pitching in different ways? It's a really good question, actually. I think, I don't know that necessarily different sectors benefit from, from pitching in different ways. I think different founders benefit from, from pitching in different ways. Like, I think there are certain beats that you you have to hit, right? You have to, well, first of all, never, the founder is always going to be the smartest person in a, in a pitching context. They're going to know their product and their market so much better than the the investor that they're talking to. So you've always got to explain the problem. You've always got to explain your solution. You've always got to be able to demo or at least talk about your product. You've got to be able to kind of answer any questions they might have about market size, competition, etc. But then different founders approach it in different ways. So so people who are maybe very strong and and technical might spend more time thinking and and talking about you know, the technical side of their product and how that's their competitive advantage or their moats or the networks that they have and how they'll be able to hire a bunch of, of data scientists into their products. A consumer founder might actually spend less time talking about the problem and the solution, but more time talking about why they decided to start the business. Like what, what was it that drove them to do this? What was it that, that kind of gives them that personality edge? So I think sector-wise, you know, you hit relatively similar beats, but I think depending on what it is that you're pitching, the, the way that you tell that story probably is necessarily different because my expectation of a founder of a direct-to-consumer brand is probably very different to my expectation of someone who's building a deep tech, you know, health company that, that's that's using kind of AI for, for analysis of, you know, results or test results. Yeah, that makes total sense. And in terms of a founder so, or founders so let you know let's say they get past the the pitch deck stage and and you jump on a 30 minute call with them what are you looking for like how can someone if someone's in front of you how can they show you that they are a great founder i mean for for me there's there's a couple of things like as i mentioned a, a minute ago like i'm i'm really interested in the why behind the business like you know what why do people want to solve the problems that they're that they're solving you know, ultimately, what you're looking for there is like some sort of unfair advantage or some sort of drive or passion or, you know, some sort of X factor that's going to kind of elevate this founder and this business. Because I'm not just thinking about this as like, oh, you know, you want to see your return in 10 years. I'm also thinking about this from the context of, hey, if this person can't convince me in 30 minutes to, to invest in their company, how are they going to convince anyone to join the company as a as a hire? So I think you really need to kind of get that that passion for the for the product across. 
I think it's it's really important to to cover some of the you know to to be ready. I mean, one of the pieces of advice I, I give to companies all the time is to build an investor FAQ. So every time you have a conversation with an investor, a mentor, an advisor, you know anyone related to the business, like make a note of the questions that they asked and kind of start to stack rank them and say, hey, we're constantly being asked about our go to market. Maybe we need to address that a little bit uh, a little bit sooner. But you need to understand what are the kind of the key topics that that an investor will want to cover in that thirty minute meeting. And usually, it's to dig in a little bit more deeply on on one or two kind of maybe three key areas of the either maybe the product, the the go to market strategy. You know, for me, I'm always interested in kind of hiring plans and 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 you know the the bits that are missing from from the puzzle. So I think that that kind of thirty minute conversation is is usually you know it's it's as close as you get to a kind of go or no go. Like you know, obviously, you want to get the pitch over the line and get a get a second conversation. And and usually, if you can convince someone in that second conversation, you know, you're you're probably eighty or ninety percent of the way towards towards getting a deal. So it's more about maybe removing any potential red flags. And I would say also to founders, like do a little bit of research on the on the investor that you're talking to, if you can, like have a look at their background, see what are the questions that they're likely to ask you about, or you know, search them on Twitter. Like I, I'm never going to ask you about your, you know, forward looking financial model because I know it's just totally made up, uh, especially if you're a pre seed company. I might ask you about your hiring plan and how that stacks up against the money that you're raising, but try to kind of get a picture for what it is that this investor might care about more than others and. You know, to the extent that you can try and direct the conversation, and also don't be afraid to ask beforehand. Hey, are there specific questions you'd like to cover? Are there, you know, any additional materials you'd, you'd like to see on the call or in the in the conversation? Yeah, I think there's some amazing advice there, and I, and I totally agree with the FAQ thing. I think for anyone listening, that's a really really good tip. Who's uh, raising or going to raise uh, around? For me, when I'm hearing a pitch, I, I, as I say, you know, my easy street is is SaaS and marketplace, and you expect those types of founders, you know, to have a certain way about them to be able to sell is obviously important. And so I look at that quite heavily. That similar to what you were just saying, that if a founder can't sell their own business to me, are they going to be able to sell their product out in the real world? And, you know, you can have the best product in the world, but if you can't sell it, you don't make any money. So I'm interested from the more sort of techie founders that you might deal with. As I say, I'm not in front of those types of people as much. Do you have the same expectation on, you know, yeah, people that are like data scientists or, you know, deep tech that might not have the sales swag, let's say that, you know, a founder in a marketplace or SaaS business might have. Do you judge them on that? Or are you more looking at their technical ability and then higher in sales? To an extent, you you, you have to judge them on it. I think, I mean, uh, you know, maybe the decision weighting is, is 60, 70%, maybe even higher in favor of their technical ability. But I think even the, the most deep tech and, and most techie deep tech companies, even the ones that I've invested in myself, you're almost always still going to have to do founder-led sales for the first six months, right? And and I'm not expecting anyone to kind of, you know, transform from a, a PhD grad to, you know, the Wolf of Wall Street, like Jordan Belfort to level of sales in in, uh, in a couple of months. But what I want to be able to do is have a, a level of confidence that these founders can sit in front of key partners and key clients and the stakeholders within those businesses and explain the value proposition of what they're doing and, and why you know this company should want to you know buy the product or pilot or, or, or test with them. And then they're going to build out a sales FAQ. They're going to build out a sales playbook. They're going to build out this kind of document that they can give to their eventual sales hire or hires as, as they come in and go, hey, 
we've done this for six months. We now know what all the objections are. Here's the objection handling document. Here's the FAQ document. Here's the way that we've learned to describe the product. And the only people in my estimation who can do that are, are the founders in the, in the initial stages. So I don't need them to be kind of slick, amazing sales guys with, with kind of shiny suits and, and tasseled shoes. But I do need them to be able to kind of explain their product in, in clear language. Or I do have to have the confidence that with the right coaching and, and, and the right support that they'll be able to do that. Because, you know, everything that you do as a founder of a company you're selling something, right? If you're trying to hire someone, you're selling the vision of the company, the excitement of the role, the opportunity that lies in front of the person. You're selling your product to a customer who might buy it. You're selling your vision and you know your financial acumen and everything else to, to investors. And a lot of that is just kind of communication skills. So as I say, I don't, I don't expect everyone to be a kind of savant when it comes to communication, but I do expect people to be able to learn how to do it and not you know one of my big red flags is people who are like oh i'll just hire a sales team on day one and i'll never have to to deal with that it's like like when i when i was a founder i hated selling right or I, I don't mind business development i like pitching people i hate ringing them up afterwards and asking them for money but i have to learn how to do that because otherwise i would have had a business that everyone was very excited about but no one was willing to pay for and so you you, you know you have to be willing to push yourself out of your comfort zone because no business is ever going to run, you know, as as linearly and as as cleanly as the business books or you know some of the articles that you read online might might suggest. Yeah, I love that, and I think it's not often talked about enough the the, the concept of founders being ready to push themselves out of their their comfort zones. So yeah, I really really like that. Let's talk about competition. So how important is competition to you when deciding to invest, and and how do you look at competition? I think about it through, I suppose, a few different lenses, depending on the company. So the first thing is like, if, if you're, you know, if you're a founder and you're out and you're fundraising and the VC asks you like, oh, what if Google do this? Or what if Shopify do this? Or what if you, you know, Facebook do this? Like, that's just lazy questioning. And it, it, it kind of shows that maybe they haven't really thought, thought through the opportunity very much. You know, you could say that of, of virtually any business on the world uh, or in the world, you know, what if one of these big guys do it? I'm much more interested in, in kind of, are the founders aware of, you know, the, the direct competitors, the indirect competitors, and do they have an understanding of, you know, at, at a deep level, ideally, what they're all doing and, and how they differentiate themselves? Uh, you know, the, the story that always stuck out for me was that the rumor is that the, the folks from Optimizely, when they were doing their Series A, the, the deck was just, I think it was about 40 or 50 slides, and it was, each slide was one of their competitors, and then the next slide was why Optimizely was better. Right. And so that level of, of kind of insane analysis of, of your competitors, I think, is something I'm not saying everyone should, should, should have 50 slides on that. But I think that level of awareness of, of the competitive landscape is important, not because I'm worried that the competitors might do a better job than this company, but because I want the founders of the companies that I back to learn from their competitors to go, oh, yeah, they've made this mistake or, you know, they did this really well. And, and I want to be able to kind of do something similar. I would very rarely decline an investment on the basis purely on the basis of, of competition i i might if i kind of go hey you're building ad tech startup in 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 a space that's already kind of massively crowded and, and you have no differentiation you know it's less about competition rather than the the product itself but i think it's good for companies to be aware of competitors and in some cases you know we meet a lot of b2b SaaS companies where you know and this is by the way one thing you should never say as a founder is like we have no competition. Right? Everyone has competition. Your competition might be that I can watch Netflix instead of implementing your solution. So there's something out there that other people can can do 
But we meet a lot of a lot of B2B SaaS companies who are kind of going, oh, well, we don't really have any competition. And actually, their competition is people just not doing anything. Right? Like, oh, you've got this amazing, innovative solution that people never knew they needed. So your competition is people just not doing anything at all, like the, the status quo is. So I think you've got to think through those things as well, because if you are building something that is a new category, your go-to-market is necessarily going to be very different to one where you're going up against kind of incumbents with, you know, legacy systems, dated software, et cetera, et cetera. And finally, I want to just touch upon go-to-market. So let's think about sort of seed and pre-seed stage. How important is it for you that the founders have an appreciation or understanding about their go-to-market where they may have not even executed it yet? So it's likely to change, but maybe A, have lived the go-to-market that they're going to implement or B, just have a good understanding of go-to-market. How deep would you expect them to be on that part of the business at the sort of seed pre-seed stage? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's really important. It's, it's certainly one of the kind of bigger areas that I, that I look at. And I don't necessarily expect people to have the perfect go-to-market and you know, the kind of strategy and tactics ironed out. But what I do expect is that people have a set of hypotheses or experiments that they're going to run to go, hey, we could target every, you know, the canonical one is like, oh, a startup that's targeting other startups, right? Great, you could target every startup, but actually maybe you need to think about a go-to-market that targets fintech startups that have raised less than 5 million. Another go-to-market that targets, you know, direct-to-consumer startups that have raised 1 to 2 million. So I would much rather see kind of a set of granular experiments, particularly a pre-seed stage, that a company says that it's going to run in order to gather data and better define their go-to-market. Because that process is not just necessarily your your go-to-market or your customer acquisition strategy. It's also customer development. And so if you're running these experiments, if you're having these conversations, you are going to build a better product. You are going to build a more coherent go-to-market. You're going to have you know, a very different rationale instead of messages to, to put out there because you've talked and, and, and listened and, and iterated and, and gone back out again. So you know, for me, I think it's it's important because you do meet an extra still, you know, it's 2022. I think probably saying this for the last 10 years. I still meet a lot of founders who like the Kevin Costner movie Field of Dreams, right? They believe if you build it, they will come. <laughs> and and really, it's that's not enough. Like you, you can't just have a great product. It's the same way that people think, I'll just list on Product Hunt and, and everyone will come to me. It's like the companies that get to number one on Product Hunt have literally planned that for weeks. Like, it, you know, there's probably been a, a whole person who's just been contacting kind of influencers and customers and friends and making sure that they have, you know, all of the right materials and the right stuff lined up in the right way to give themselves the best chance of being in whatever it is, the top six or eight that get sent out in the Product Hunt newsletter the next day. So like, you know, being lazy around this stuff. And, you know, again, we meet a lot of founders who kind of go, oh, you know, marketing and go to market, like that's easy. Anyone can do that. And, you know, like kind of liberal, some liberal arts graduate will come and fix that problem for me. And, you know, as a liberal arts graduate, I can tell you that most people are not equipped to solve that problem. You need to be really systematic about thinking about your, your go to market because, you know, nowadays, particularly where there's so much noise and so many products, like if you don't get it right, your first or second time out of the gate, then um, you're going to be in a, in a, in a pretty bad place. Yeah, I think there's some some brilliant, brilliant advice there that everyone can take. So yeah, unfortunately, that's that's the end of our chat here. I think there's been some amazing takeaways for anyone listening who is or thinking about fundraising. So Eamon, thank you so much for your time. Hugely appreciate it. Amazing. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to today's episode. 
And if you enjoyed it, I'd hugely appreciate it if you can share it on socials or indeed just with your network. If you're feeling extra generous, I'd absolutely love it if you could leave us a review on Spotify, the Play Store or iTunes. That is the only way we get more listeners. So thanks for that. Support for Pitch Deck also comes from Planes Studio. If you've got an idea for a business and want to quickly get a product live, you should check them out. Whether you're a startup or scale up, they help you take your idea, build a prototype and launch it into market before your competitors do. And they'll also keep learning from your customers to only build the features you need as you grow. We've worked with them at Horseplay Ventures and I can safely say they're some of the smartest product thinkers and builders out there right now. So check out planes.studio.